You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Welcome to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Yan Shudwa. As 2020 comes to a close and Victoria settles into their new COVID normal, one community still reeling from the lockdown are the residents of the Nine Towers. Most of you will remember that in July, Nine Housing Commission Towers were forced into a hard lockdown. This meant that residents could only leave their homes for supervised exercise on compassionate grounds and for emergencies. These detention orders were unprecedented and as we'll show, had a devastating effect on residents. Shortly after, the Victorian Ombudsman opened an investigation into the detention and treatment of public housing residents. And if you're interested in reading the full report, visit www.ombudsman.vic.gov.au. In summary, the report echoes what residents, advocates and health professionals have been saying for some time now, that the measures were hasty and were not compatible with the residents' human rights. The Ombudsman also listed the failures of the Department of Health and Human Services, including, most astonishingly, a failure to ensure that residents had access to medication during their detainment. 3CR's Diaspora Blues program spoke to residents from 33 Alfred, and on today's show, we listen back to their coverage of the hard lockdown. We start the program with a resident from 33 Alfred Street. The resident who has chosen to be anonymous walks us through her ordeal and explains why she feels let down by those charged to protect us. Um, I found out about the lockdown in the high-rise buildings pretty much when everybody else in Australia found out about it on the news about 5pm today um, when Dan Andrew came on and told Australia that these towers were um, going into lockdown immediately. That's how everybody in the towers, in the buildings, in the flats, that's how everybody found out about it. The problem was that there's a lot of people that don't watch the news that won't, you know, that information didn't get to them until, you know, other tenants actually told them that, you know, we're going into immediate lockdown. And even that was not made clear itself because in the news, he said that it's going it's going to be effective for 12 um, a.m. tonight. Um, however, when we went downstairs to go do our last-minute shopping, um, the police that were heavily um, downstairs were like, no, you can't because it's up immediately. A lot of people are saying five days is not much, but five days is a lot for somebody who has panic attacks. Five days is a lot for somebody who's going to go into anaphylaxis shock and that doesn't have their EpiPen straight away. Five days is a lot for a person who is living in a home already by themselves that already felt alone and would go outside and see people only then. What's more scary is that it can be extended to 14 days. They've only said five days now. That doesn't mean that it's only going to be for five days. Five days after five days or after three days, they can come around and say, oh, it's been extended to 14 days. Mm-hmm. I also, you know, also have to question 
how are they going to get results of 3,000 plus tenants results in five days? Who's actually doing the, te um, the sampling? Who's getting these results? Where Where is it being done? I don't think that the situation's fair because I don't need why you need a police officer to take care of a health issue. Why don't they have nurses outside? Why don't they have healthcare workers outside? They they made an announcement a couple of days ago where in, in the high rise, and usually these announcements are only made for fire evacuation. However, they made announcements telling people to come downstairs and get tested. There's free testing. Now, from what I know as a healthcare worker, the COVID testing was free. So they've been the last couple of days testing people and then suddenly everybody going downstairs. So people are actually complying and actually doing, you know, going downstairs and thinking, oh, okay, you know, we're going to get tested. We're going to get tested. And then today at 5 p.m., no results were told to, you know, the building or anyone else, but we went immediately into lockdown. So, no, I don't think it's fair at all. So no, nobody's against the, uh, call it, the testing. However, the basic human right to go for a fresh air, to step outside your door, now that, that's what everybody's against, that the guy that lives across the building even though he's in the same area as me, can go for a 30-minute walk, can go to his job, can go to do shopping whilst I can't even step outside my door. I absolutely think this is a class issue. This is discrimination of a already socially disadvantaged community. People are living in these high-rises because of, you know, being disadvantaged, not because of a choice and... I feel like they're being used as a scapegoat for the Dan Andrew government and Labour for whatever it is, because I, I don't understand. I don't think that they would do that to a white neighbourhood. Another resident who was affected by the hard lockdown was Barry Barra. Barry is the founder of Young Australian People and lives at 33 Alfred. In this segment, Barry shares what it's like living under the hard lockdown and what he misses about the outside world. Hi, my name is Barry. I'm 26 years old. Uh, I'm a youth worker and I live in North Melbourne um, in the high rise in 33 Alfred Street. So I'm a youth worker. Um, so I work between North Melbourne and Flemington. Um, I'm part of a lot of the community groups as well, um, especially the African community, but mostly uh, people that who live in the high rises. And so I decided to run my own organization called Young Australian People to support them into employment um, and other uh, direction of their journey. Basically, um, as everybody knew, there was nine towers. And after that, day five, 33 after Street was in lockdown. A lot of people were very shocked and surprising. A lot of people have missed their sleep during the lockdown. Um, so, for example, people that, who have gone to work and also people that who have gone to school as well. Food delivery is very different because there's cleaning in between the middle of the day. We don't expect the food delivery until in the afternoon. There's a schedule to go for a walk in the morning or in the afternoon, basically. And so a lot of people are pretty much just like looking outside sometimes uh, over the windows. They just want to know what's going on downstairs and what's happening, basically. Timing is a bit different. I'm sleeping early and I'm getting up late because I haven't been working. 
so my mind just been very very lazy and like not making myself occupied but the last 14 days just been like communicating with people who are down the ground and seeing what the what's the update basically um there's been a few zoom meetings um which is good uh to keep people occupied and as well um and i've been one of them as well one or two of them um and it's been really good very helpful for the, a lot of the young people um expressing their their thoughts about this lockdown and also sharing their stories as well i've been missing my coffee <laughs> Um, so I've been missing my during the day coffee and I, you know, I just walk around getting fresh air and seeing people basically. Um, but also just being like able to just go for exercise. Um, I would say that a lot of people who are in this high rises, they're very, they've been here for more than 30 years. They know the system. They know who's, who's the neighbors, um, very well. Um, and there's a lot of people there who are very, you know, educated in this building. So please, please do not judge them. That's my another story. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. So far, we've been listening to messages from residents of 33 Alfred Street. These messages were recorded July of this year when the residents were forced into hard lockdown. Diaspora Blues also spoke to Dr. Zuleika Zavalis an applied sociologist and the founder of the blog, The Other Sociologist. Dr. Zaleka looks at moral panic and how this phenomena is playing in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. I am a sociologist. Um, so that means that I study society and in particular how culture and institutions have an impact on the way we live our lives and um, the institutions that um, have an impact on our life choices and our life outcomes. So a lot of sociology um, is obviously research-based that's done in universities and a lot of that academic work is published in um, journals that are kind of locked um, under paywall because obviously uh, it's about generating the knowledge for our discipline. An applied sociologist, though, is somebody who moves away from um, universities. We work um, in other places. For example, we help to shape social policies. We evaluate government programs. We have a look at whether things are working for particular client groups. We work with communities to make sure that um, services and programs are meeting their needs. So my blog is... Uh, set up to try and bring those two worlds together. So I publish everything free and for the public. You don't have to be a sociologist to follow me. And what I try and do is to summarise some of those um, ideas that come out of academia and to capture some of my experiences working um, across different settings to look at topical issues, particularly around social justice, social inclusion and racial justice. And so I write articles to try and help people, you know, provide guidelines for people who are looking to um, decrease racial discrimination in the workplace, for example, or as is the case, um, I write articles on issues like the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and my later, one of my latest articles is around um, how we can use um, an understanding of race to... Uh, contextualise the way in which the pandemic has been managed to date. 
Can you um, tell us a little bit about the name of your blog and why you decided on that? Sure. So my blog is called The Other Sociologist. So the concept of otherness is in the way in which many societies, especially societies that have been colonised, they tend to set things up in uh, binaries. So um, the dominant group is everything about them is natural and normal and um, not questioned. And then there's the others, everybody who's not the same as the dominant group. Um, and so otherness is a concept that describes how societies organise difference and how categories of difference reproduce inequality. So, for example, you know, woman is the other of man. Um, it's, it's about us versus them. It's about, um, you know, migrants being seen as the other to Anglo-Australians, for example. So my blog is about unpacking how uh, social difference is organised and how that feeds into inequality at different points in time for different groups. In your article, you talk a lot around moral panic. Can you speak about that and what conditions create moral panic? So moral panic is a situation where a particular group or a particular event might be um, seen as a threat to the existing social values and particularly the interests of elite members or dominant groups. It happens when there's a great period of stress or big social changes, which is like the pandemic at the moment. It gives rise to conditions where um, some groups become... Uh, more demonised and stigmatised as um, being the cause of um, whatever it is that is stressing people out. So it's happened across history in lots of different ways, um, but some of the features of a moral panic is basically that there'll always be um, a folk devil. So there'll be a group that becomes blamed for all of society's ills and many, um, in many cases... This is often racial minorities, and certainly with the pandemic, it's been minority groups. Um, and some, some features of this is basically, um, when you look at the 12 uh, restricted postcodes in Victoria, they are highly multi multicultural areas. And while they did have um, concerning patterns of infection, the data that was being released by the Health Department of Victoria was actually showing that um, they only made up around 50 together, the 12 suburbs made up around 50% of infections. So you could cut those, you could take probably any 12 different suburbs and probably still get um, some concerning patterns. But the focus of the primary lockdown was on those multicultural suburbs and um, widespread testing that included door knocking and police being involved and then eventually military. So it was a highly um, over-policed response that wasn't done in the first way when the majority of the infections were coming from middle class and affluent people who were returning from overseas travel. Um, so the moral panic is, it begins with people in authority basically um, feeding into the general populations, especially white people's fear that anybody who's different um, might be to, to blame for the spread of the pandemic, when in fact, 
we are now, it is very clear that the problem is not race-based at all and it is based around um, class and inequality. Of the infections of the second wave are in working class and precariously employed occupations. It's aged workers, it's people working in the healthcare system, it's people working in um, meat factories. And the overwhelming majority of those people happen to be migrants and happen to be poorer people who are struggling to make ends meet, who don't have adequate sick leave. Um, and for whom social distancing is probably not as easy as it is for middle-class people who can easily work from home. So moral panics very quickly latch onto people who are different minorities and blame them when in fact um, they often, in fact almost never has a, has a moral panic been justified on a racial minority group. It's usually to do with inequalities that are already exist in society that make um, certainly this pandemic and other public health um, responses be um, focused in the wrong areas. Um, so with that structural inequality, uh, on your article you mentioned uh, how benevolent paternalism plays um, a part in that and how, you know, we're seeing these people who are facing structural inequalities are being treated and how they're addressed. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what benevolent paternalism is and uh, yeah, and how we can recognize that? Sure. So benevolent paternalism is the ways in which governments sometimes with the presumption that government is better placed to make decisions on behalf of citizens. Um, very rarely is policy made that way that's equally applied to everybody. Um, so this isn't just about the introduction of laws. This is about specific situations when governments will make um, particular rules or laws that take away the autonomy for from um, particular minority groups to make their own informed choices and often lead to a denial of um, civil rights. So um, an example of a, of a good public health measure is social distancing. When social distancing, we know that it works and when it's applied to everybody equally, so we're all being told the four things that we must do in order to stop the spread of infection, if that's applied to everyone equally, that's not an example of, of benevolent paternalism. That's just good evidence-based public health response. Um, Benevolent paternalism is when a particular group is being treated differently than everybody else on the presumption that they can't do the right thing, they can't be trusted to do the, the right thing on their own. So you can actually hear it in a lot of the political speeches that are being given, especially in those daily press releases where you have decision makers saying things like um, when they justified the lockdown of the Nine Towers, it was justified along these terms. We're protecting them. So the presumption is that these individuals, these people in the um, Nine Towers who are racial minorities, that they have to be locked down by police or otherwise um, they can't be trusted like the rest of Melbourne to follow the rules. When in fact, we know that there were other dynamics at play 
such as the fact that social housing has a long history of um, being poorly serviced. The government already knew that those facilities were inadequate, that, they were, that it posed a public health interest. And instead of addressing those issues and planning together with the community, communicating and working collaboratively with um, the residents of the Nine Towers and the local grass groups, community groups that already service those um, individuals. Um, back in March, when the overseas situation was escalating and it looked like we, we needed to go into lockdown. So rather than addressing that months ago, the government decided to make a, a sudden decision to put those residents into lockdown. They said it was for their own good, but in fact, um, it, it led to further inequalities and um, further denial of um, informed consent around testing. And it meant that those residents actually were um, not getting culturally adequate um, resources, food, that they um, were getting poor communication when this could have been handled very differently. And in fact, it would have been handled very differently if those high-rise towers contained affluent white Anglo-Saxon Australians. With that, the why would sort of racialized communities be reluctant to, so the people that we see in the Nine Towers um, are mostly people of um, African background, Asian background, um, migrants, um, and as you were mentioning, like the police and how the, the government has responded way late when they could have put measures in place earlier to kind of avoid these situations. Um, that would uh, clearly kind of play into how people, how these people are interacting with the police and the government and that distrust. Um, can you speak more about how all of that leads to like reluctance to, to engage with um, sort of the measures that were being put in place and how, yeah, how they were being treated? Absolutely. So um, my past research has looked at this exact issue. So um, governments are constantly um, wringing their hands as to why racial minorities and, um, and disadvantaged groups don't collaborate and don't come forward more willingly. And the fact is that these communities have complex needs. So on the, some of the reasons why um, residents might be um, not as forthcoming and would have actually very good reasons not to trust their interactions. Um, it could be partly because um, where those migrants have been forced to migrate or perhaps they were asylum seekers and refugees, they may have experienced um, very uh, negative and um, a lot of persecution, a lot of negative experiences in their original home country or, or oftentimes people are relocated to many countries in between before they finally resettle in Australia. They may have spent time in uh, refugee camps and so they are constantly exposed to very poor behaviours by state authorities and so by the time they settle in Australia, um, of course it makes sense that they may not trust um, the government here either. And the government knows that. There's a lot of research that they've produced that already shows that. 
Um, and that means that governments already understand that a better way to approach communities is to build trust and that trust needs to come over time. Um, and I would think that there's very little trust in a situation where um, the government already understands that the social housing dwellings are overcrowded and that they are not, the, the facilities are not up to code um, and residents have already raised issues and nothing's been done about it. Well, that already tells residents that perhaps the government's not on their side. Then there are other issues that could be in terms of um, a lot of services are not culturally, linguistically or religiously adequate. So a lot of the burden falls on community groups that are not-for-profit and often it's just volunteer run and that's what happened. So the government, the state government made a decision to go into the Nine Towers without adequate planning. They um, obviously provided incorrect food, um, they didn't provide timely medications for people who have medical conditions um, and instead of working together um, and adequately funding those uh, community groups, it actually came down to um, them providing their own services. So this is something that's also come out in previous research that I've done um, in other parts of Australia. Minority groups end up having to fend for themselves. So the, they're inadequately funded. Um, the services that are mainstream don't aren't fit for purpose. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Zaleka Zavalis. Her blog, Other Sociologists, looks at interesting concepts such as intersectionality, whiteness, heterosexism, and many more. So if you're interested, check out her blog at othersociologist.com. We'd like to thank Diaspora Blues for giving us permission to use their content. Diaspora Blues is on every Monday, 2.30 to 3pm on 3CR Community Radio. We finished today's program with Dalma Plume and her gorgeous, gorgeous track, Homecoming. I'm Ayan Shurwa and we hope to see you next week.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.